0: Thank you, Ann, and thank you all so much for being with us today at River Oaks. We are really glad to have you here. Thank you for coming. Welcome also to those of you joining us online this morning. Before we get into the message today, I want to mention a couple of upcoming events. This coming Saturday, May 6, is our women's retreat called Seeds of Service, Starts at 8.30, goes until 4. It's a a full day with breakfast and lunch. Speaker provided a great time for fellowship, spiritual renewal for the women of our church. It would be a big help if you have not yet signed up. If you'd go ahead and sign up right away, uh, you can scan the code there. And the details are in your worship guide, in your bulletin today. So uh, we're excited about that this coming Saturday. A couple of other things like to mention to you, uh, at this moment, some of our missionaries, the Tubal family, along with one of our members, Bella Tisdell, are on their way to our unreached people group. And I would I'd like to ask you to be praying for them uh, today and in the coming months. And speaking of prayer, this coming Thursday is the national day of prayer, a day that's been designated for prayer for our nation. So mark your calendar, and I'd urge you to spend a little bit of special time in prayer for the Lord's work in our country this coming Thursday. Finally, I'll mention this. Uh, We're going to have a time for prayer built into the latter part of our service this morning. We will have uh, deacons prepared, elders prepared to pray with you and for you. If you came today and you feel like, I have a need for prayer for Uh, maybe healing of some type, some suffering you're going through, some need in your family, and you'd just like some leaders of our church to pray with you and for you, Um, we'll build that time in to this uh, next hour so that um, you don't have to stay long to get prayer. So I'll say more about that in just a few minutes. But now I'd like to ask you to join me to pray as we do pray for uh, what the Lord will do in our time together this morning. Father, again we come in the name of Jesus. And Lord, as we anticipate the National Day of Prayer this Thursday, we ask for your mercy on the United States of America. Your word says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And we pray that you would so work in our nation that increasingly people would understand that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And that, Lord, your ways of righteousness, justness, holiness, and truth would be known in this land. Father, we also pray for our missionaries as they travel to a very remote part of the world this morning. Would you bless them and keep them? Would you cause your face to shine upon them and protect them? And now, Lord, as we open your word today, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I recently learned that the Better Business Bureau receives about 150,000 complaints every year. They don't respond to all those complaints. I understand they only respond to about a quarter of them, but 150,000 every year. And they put out a list of the complaints that they felt were the silliest complaints that they received. Here are a few examples. Someone made a complaint, a formal complaint, to the Better Business Bureau because they had bought a packet of ramen noodles that didn't have enough seasoning. Someone else made a complaint about a bar of soap they had purchased that was not foamy enough or bubbly enough. But someone else made a complaint about a a business that does oil changes for cars. They said they wanted to have their oil changed And here was their complaint, the mechanic didn't smell good. And they were very specific about the complaint. They wrote, the smell was like, quote, a dead cat in an alleyway. Now, I don't know what the Better Business Bureau could do to investigate that. Perhaps they could contact the company that made the non-foaming soap and have them send a case to the oil change place. But some people just like to complain, don't they? You know people like that who just complain all the time about everything? We're going to begin a study um, this morning and go for five weeks of the Old Testament book of Job. And if there were ever one person in Scripture who seemed to have had a good reason to complain, I think we might say that that person was Job. Job's name has become almost synonymous with suffering. And it's important that we as Christians get an understanding of what the Bible teaches about suffering because the Bible is filled with teaching about suffering. And I say it's important we get an understanding of that because research has shown that those who claim to be atheists list, and I think it's fairly consistently, that one of their top reasons for not believing in God is the existence of suffering in the world. For many people, it's all but impossible to reconcile the reality of evil and suffering with the existence of a good and all-powerful God. And so we'll be studying Job over the next few weeks, and we're we're going to just take a very broad look at the book of Job because we're only spending five weeks there, and there are 42 chapters. So we'll be looking at some of the key themes in Job so that hopefully when you and I are doing our Bible reading and we we get to the book of Job, we'll have a renewed appreciation for what this book has to teach us. First of all, the key figures in the first two chapters of Job And I'd like to focus on three. Obviously, uh, one is Job. And as uh, Ann read in our passage just a moment ago on the first few verses, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And he's described this way. That man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, when the Bible says that Job was blameless, it does not mean that he never sinned. All people have sinned, every human being that's ever lived on the face of the earth with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Job 1 verse 1 uses the word blameless, it's using the Hebrew word tom, which conveys the idea of completeness, having integrity. This was a man of honesty completeness, integrity before God. He feared God. He turned away from evil. The same word is used in the Old Testament of Noah. Noah was not without sin, but he was seen as blameless and righteous in his generation. He and his entire family were preserved from the great flood in the ark. Job, likewise, in his generation among his people, was seen as God by God as a tom, blameless man of integrity. Job was also a worshiper, as we see in the next verse, Job 1 and verse 5. Job had uh, 10 children, 7 sons and uh, 3 daughters, and apparently they lived quite a party life. The Bible says that regularly they would go from house to house, house, eating, drinking, wine, feasting. And Job, their dad was concerned for them. And the Bible says, when the day of their feasts had run their course, days had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. That is, he'd rise early in the morning and offer sacrifices, burn offerings to God. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This simply tells us that Job was a father who prayed for his kids, who prayed for their spiritual well-being. He was an intercessor. He was a praying Dad, he was a worshiper of God who offered sacrifices in the prescribed way to the Lord. Another key figure, obviously, in chapters 1 and 2 of Job is God. Now, while I mentioned that suffering was certainly an important theme in the book of Job, I don't think it's the most important theme. The most important theme by far in the book of Job is the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the sovereign rule of God. By the time we get to the book of Job, my hope above all of the things we learn is that we have a bigger vision of the glorious greatness of the Lord God. When we read in Job chapter one, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. We can understand that sons of God here is a reference to angels angelic beings. And the fact that they're coming to present themselves before the Lord simply shows that they are subordinate to the Lord. They are accountable to the Lord. And apparently it was unusual that Satan would come among them because on this particular day, Satan comes and uh, as the angels are presenting themselves to the Lord. And of course, Satan uh, begins talking uh, to to God about Job. And God says, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan goes out to afflict Job. The word Satan is used here means adversary or accuser. Actually, the Hebrew reads the Satan, the adversary, the accuser. And he's an adversary to God, he's an adversary to God's people, but as one writer says, he's an adversary on a chain. He's only doing now what God allows him to do. Well, what about Satan? What about him? We read next in Job 1 and verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And he said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking, walking down on it. Then they get in this discussion about Job and Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord and, and, and afflicts Job. It's important to stress something here. Satan was a created being. He was not, he is not God's equal opposite. God has no equal. He has no equal opposite. If Satan has an opposite in Scripture, it is probably the archangel Michael, who later in the New Testament he's shown to be disputing with and warring with. Satan's name means adversary or accuser. In the New Testament, the word devil is a translation of the word diabolos, which means slanderer. So Satan's an adversary to God and his people. He's an accuser of God's people. He's a slanderer. Jesus said this about Satan. He said in the Gospel of John chapter 8, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. A murderer, a liar, no truth in him. A slanderer, the adversary, the accuser. Now this chapter and the way it presents Satan coming before God's throne raises some questions. And so I'd like to just take a moment and try to, to um, address some questions that may come up about who, who Satan is. Who is he? Again, he is an adversary to God. And as you see in Job 2 verses 4 through 6... Satan is, I guess we'd say, challenging God. He says, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to your face. Satan seems to be seeking to get Job, this blameless, upright man, to curse God, to stop trusting God, worshiping God, serving God. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, in our world when people curse, that they often connect their curse to the name of God? You ever wondered why it is that when people curse and blaspheme, they include the name of Jesus, they include the name of God? Why not connect a curse with the name of Satan (laughs) or some other name? But this is the spirit of the world we live in. This is Satan's work to get human beings to blaspheme God, to dishonor God, to curse God, to turn from God, to cease trusting God. And that's what Satan was attempting to do, to get Job to cease trusting God. Where is Satan now? Because this passage, you know, it presents him coming right before God's throne and some people wonder, is Satan there now? I do not believe he is in the immediate presence of God now before God's throne. There's a passage in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus had commissioned 72 of his followers to go out and preach and teach and heal and cast out demons. And they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, when did Jesus see this? What time is he talking about? Is he talking about the ancient time when Satan rebelled against God or was cast out? Or is he speaking figuratively, saying, While you were out there casting out demons, I saw him fall like lightning. Or was he speaking prophetically that when I'm crucified, raised from the dead, he'll be cast down forever? I don't know, but I think the passage implies that Satan is no longer in the immediate presence of God with access to the throne of God as we read in Job chapter 1. That's just my opinion Furthermore, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, gives us this beautiful picture that you'll see in the next verses on the screen. We read, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Michael uh, is a ruling angel, an archangel, a good angel on God's side. The dragon is representative of Satan. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the Power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So, just my opinion. Satan's not in the immediate presence of God's throne. One other question about Satan is this. Obviously, God allowed the devil to afflict Job. And if God allows Satan to attack... Should we resist him? And I would say emphatically, yes. Emphatically, yes. Here's what the New Testament teaches. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's the posture of a believer in Jesus, submissiveness to the Lord. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Our posture as Christians is always submission to the Lord our God, but resistance toward the devil. Just as Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, quoted Scripture saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, take the shield of faith wherewith you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Resistance. Likewise, Peter writes, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Our posture is one of resistance. Now, with that little bit of background on on Job, on God, on Satan, let's let's take a big picture look at uh, the book of Job, particularly these early chapters, and see what you and I can learn about facing the sufferings that we encounter in life. What do we learn from the book of Job? First, and if you're following on your printed outline, this is where we'll we'll start with that. One of the truths that emerges from the book of Job's is that sometimes righteous people suffer for reasons we do not understand. Job was a very good man in his time. And again, he is described as blameless and upright God would say later, speaking to Satan, if you considered my servant Job, there's none like him on the earth. That's pretty good when God says there's none like you on the earth. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil, holds fast to his integrity. Years later, the book of Ezekiel, when God was talking about judgment coming upon the land, He he uses for emphasis the example of three men whom God considered particularly righteous and upright. These three men were Noah, who was righteous in his generation and saved through the ark. Daniel, righteous exile in Babylon, who was saved from the lion's den. And Job. Job A point is this that Job's in pretty good company when God puts him with the top people in the Old Testament in terms of their uprightness Job Job's a godly man good man feared God man of integrity worshipper of the Lord However Job's godliness and faith in his integrity did not spare him from suffering. Neither did the Apostle Paul's great faith and devotion to the Lord in the New Testament spare him from suffering. Neither did the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, spare him from suffering. The point is simply this. Sometimes righteous people suffer for reasons we do not understand. We may not understand in this life. And realizing that, I would urge you not to try to figure out the reason that another person is suffering. Don't be like the disciples of Jesus, who saw a blind man and they said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God should be displayed in him. Jesus was correcting a common misunderstanding of their time, that if somebody was afflicted in some way, it was a result of their sin or parental sin. Jesus says that's that's not the case. You and I would be wise not to try to figure out why some people suffer. I'd particularly say this. Please, please, please in our church, don't judge parents whose kids may not appear to have turned out as well as perhaps your kids have. Don't say, I wonder what they did wrong. If you say anything, say, you know, they must be much stronger than I to be able to endure such a difficult trial. Sometimes righteous people, the most righteous people, and in my experience I've seen that to be the case, sometimes the most righteous, most godly people I know suffer for reasons I do not understand and perhaps will not in this life. But a second thing emerges in the book of Job, and that is this. God sees our suffering. He sees the suffering of his righteous ones, and he will never forsake us. Throughout the book of Job, it's clear God never took his eyes off of Job. God heard every complaint Job made. and As we read the book, we'll say Job did register quite a few complaints. I mean, before we get out of chapter 3... Job opens his mouth and cursed the day of his birth and said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Job did lament quite a bit. God heard what Job said. God knew what Job thought. He listened to Job's prayers. He's with us in our sufferings. The Apostle Paul is really a a model of Um, great suffering in the New Testament. In fact, before God even called Paul, he said to the man who would pray for Paul, Ananias, he said, "Um, I'm going to show him how much he'll suffer for my sake. I'm going to show that to Paul. So Paul was somewhat unusual in that regard, the degree of his suffering writing about one of his sufferings in particular, particular, Paul said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's as if God was saying to Paul, Paul, just trust me in this. I'm doing something through you that's greater than you can know. But just trust me. Just trust me. If we could see the end of everything, we would understand that in our most difficult times in life, God did not forsake us. He did not leave us. Uh, Jesus said to his followers, I'm with you always. And the writer of Hebrews says that we can say, we can know the Lord says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Third thing we'll see from the book of Job, and we won't really see this until we get the whole picture of Job, is that we can actually grow. We can grow stronger in faith. We can grow to know God better. We can grow to know, love God more as we walk with him, and I would emphasize the words with him, through suffering. If we will walk with God in the hardest things and turn to him, toward him, seeking him, and not turn away from him, that's essentially what the person does who says, I no longer believe in God because I cannot reconcile the existence of a good, all-powerful God with all this suffering in the world. No. We turn to him in our suffering. And when we do, we can grow closer to him and experience a greater depth of his love and his compassion and his mercy. If we look ahead to the very end of the book of Job, we'll learn a remarkable thing. At the very beginning of Job, Job was blameless and upright. That that's that's a Those are high accolades right there in the inspired scripture. Call a a man blameless and upright. One who feared God. One who turned away from evil. And the Lord said that about it. In the very beginning, he's a worshiper of God. He's a prayer. He's a dad who's praying for his kids. So he's, we'd say he's pretty strong in his faith. But you know what he says at the end of the book? He says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you." In other words, Lord, I, I thought I knew you then, but I really know you now. The point is simply this. We can grow to know God better and love him more as we walk with Him through suffering. Now, I want you to look at a very remarkable verse, if we can put that slide, same slide back up, with James 5 and verse 11. This, to me, is a most remarkable verse. It comes in the New Testament book of James, and in its context, James is talking about suffering. He writes, brothers, as an example of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's writing to believers in the New Testament, and he knows they're suffering. He says, remember the prophets, all these prophets, they spoke in the name of the Lord. Remember, they're an example of what it was to persevere in suffering. And then he uses one Old Testament figure by name, specifically Job. Behold, we consider blessed those who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now wait a minute. For what is Job remembered in the New Testament? His many complaints, and he had many. As we'll see in the book of Job, he had lots of laments and complaints. But for what is he remembered in the New Testament? As a complainer, he's remembered for his steadfastness. The word translated "steadfastness" comes from a Greek word, a Greek word "hoopomano," and it, it's could be just as easily translated endurance, perseverance, or even patience. Earlier, James had said, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because the testing of your faith produces endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, patience. This testing of your faith, it produces this quality, steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. And this quality is necessary if you are to be mature and complete. And now James gives us an example. You want an example of somebody who persevered, who was steadfast, who endured? You've heard of the perseverance of Job. And what was the end result? And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What a reflection on the book of Job. That the key quality we see in this man is his endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. And the key thing we learn about God is his great nature of being compassionate and merciful. The point is simply that Job grew and we can too if we walk with God and turn to him and not away from him in sufferings even when we do not understand them. Finally, because of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, all suffering for believers will end. What the atheist does not know and needs to know is that this life is not all there is. This life is only a, a drop of time in the ocean of eternity. In Christ, in Jesus, the greatest suffering that's ever been experienced led to the greatest possible good for all believers. I say the greatest suffering because no one ever suffered like Jesus. Now, someone may ask, well, weren't a lot of people crucified by the Romans? Yes, countless people were crucified by the Romans, but only one person was ever crucified who was without sin. Only one person was ever crucified who was God, the Son of God. Only one person was ever crucified who was crucified to bear our sin debt, our judgment, which he did on the cross. No one suffered like Jesus. But the greatest suffering ever experienced has led to the greatest good for all believers. And because of what he did, all suffering for believers has an end. Perhaps in this life, and we pray for that, we hope for that, but even if not in this life, in the great eternity that lies ahead. That's why Paul wrote the words you see on the screen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christ suffered to bring us to God. And as we read in the beautiful description in Revelation chapter 21, John says the time will come when will say, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the form of things have passed away. Job will later express it this way, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So we reflect on the book of Job. Two questions by way of, of application. The first is this How is God calling me to respond in any suffering that I'm facing? James says it this way Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's the prescription of the New Testament. Is it wrong to pray for suffering to end? Absolutely not. It's exactly what God says to do. If you're suffering, pray. Pray for an end. We're going to do that today in just a moment. Um, I'm going to end the message uh, just a moment, and we, we're we going to invite you, if you'd like prayer for yourself, maybe a physical need, some other need for yourself, a family member, to come to one of the back tables, to come to one of these front aisles, if you'd like to be anointed with oil for healing, we'll do that as well. And then secondly, whether this suffering ends right away or not, am I seeking to grow closer to the Lord in what I'm facing? until the suffering comes to an end. Am I seeking to grow closer to God? Am I seeking to have the Holy Spirit teach me what can I learn through this? How can you help me grow in endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, patience in this? How can you work in my life through this? I'm going to invite you now <coughs> to participate <coughs> in a in a time of prayer. For just a few minutes, I invite you if you'd like to come for prayer. <clears throat> one of these seats on the very far ends up front, or one of the tables in the back. I want to first read this prescription from James chapter five that you'll see on the screen next. James write, is, writes, "Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray." Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great powers as it is working. We believe these words. We want to put them into practice. Would you join me as we pray now? Father, we come in the name of Jesus. I want to pray for people here this morning who are suffering in some way. And I pray, Father, that you would bring an end to their suffering. And Lord, if that suffering is prolonged in any way, that you would bring great strength and perseverance, endurance and steadfastness and renewal of faith. But Father, we pray now that you would bring gifts. You told us to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. I pray for gifts of healing. Father, I pray for reconciliation of relationships. Pray for the ability to forgive those who've wronged us. And I pray for grace from the Holy Spirit now to be poured out upon your people, upon those who pray and upon those who receive prayer. May your blessing be upon your people now in Jesus' name.